Tonight we are continuing in our kind of short series on scripture and study and meditation on scripture and uh, this is a little different than what we normally do here at Grace and uh, it's one of those segments that we've set aside for us to look at how we practice some of the things that Jesus seemed to exemplify in his life. And we've talked about this before, but all of us want to experience the life of Christ, but we realize, yeah, maybe the lifestyle of Christ is not all that exciting, but to look at Jesus and to see these are the things that were central in his life, and his life was so powerful, was so effective for the cause of the gospel that, Lord, can we do some of those things that you did to enable us to draw close to the Spirit, to experience you in a rich and real way? And we've gone through prayer, we've gone through community, we've gone through kind of silence and solitude in the last couple years, and now we're focusing on Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. We believe that. But we also recognize as living in this culture that there's a lot of pushback against Scripture and God's Word in our culture. And if we're going to encourage you to study and meditate on Scripture, you're not going to do that if you think this book is full of nonsense, it's outdated, it's outmoded, maybe even immoral. And that's a lot of what's being presented out there today. I've showed a couple memes to you when I put this up. And so we've dealt with some of the objections to Christianity. And the first one that we looked at a couple weeks ago was the law. How do we look at the Old Testament law? And there's a lot of stuff like this, you know, could have banned slavery or shellfish. Shellfish. He chose shellfish. So that's the idea that this God is nuts. He's not, this is not really relevant to us at all. And so we looked a couple weeks ago at how we handle the law. And then last week we looked at science because that's a big pushback. I'm not going to look at this Bible because it's outdated, outmoded, anti-science. And so here's Jesus and a T-Rex and I'm so sorry the ark is full. So again, you see that pushback against God and science and His Word. And then this morning we're going to look at Scripture and violence. Um, there were a couple... What do you want to call them? Leading atheists that uh, probably about 10 years ago, they were called the New Atheists, came out with a lot of uh, kind of angry vitriol against uh, God and the idea of belief in God. And this is from Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. And this is what uh, Richard says um, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, megalomaniacal, there we go, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's not really good words about our Lord, but that is how often the God of scriptures are presented. And so this morning I wanted to deal with some of this kind of pushback against God because he's really violent and he's hateful, he's genocidal, to look at the whole aspect of violence in Scripture. How do we deal with some of the passages, especially in the Old Testament, that deal with violence? Um, Deuteronomy 20 
starting in verse 16, says this, and this is before the conquest of the promised land. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, in the Canaanite area, he's saying here, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So here's a command by God to go in and basically wipe out everybody that is in this area of Canaan that is the inheritance that God had promised through Abraham to the people of Israel. And we read that today, and our culture is super sensitive to, to violence and to racism and to intolerance. And we hear that, and there's just something in us that says, whoa, that's really, really, really bad, right? So how do we deal with this? How do we process these passages in the Old Testament that talk about wiping out entire peoples, men, women, and children, and facing down that reality as you get through your Bible reading and you come to these passages and you're just like, what in the world, you know? In Exodus 34, 6, it says God is, is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And then you get to these passages, like how do I put this together? And then oftentimes the Jesus of the New Testament is juxtaposed with the angry God of the Old Testament. And it's like these two are not even the same. So how do we deal with this? Just to be honest, I think this is one of the most difficult objections to handle as believers. And I think you just got to understand that right up front. This just sounds really, really harsh to us. It's very foreign to our culture. And again, you know, to me, as we wrestle with this stuff, we've got to look honestly at it. But I think there are answers to these objections. There are solutions to some of these issues. And to me, this is sometimes not going to convince a non-believer that this God is actually gracious and compassionate and loving, but to me it helps us, and some of these things I'm going to talk about have helped me process through some of this. Like I said before, um, we're, these kind of messages are going to be a little bit different than I normally do. Usually I preach expositorily out of books of the Bible, but uh, we just felt it was important as leaders to deal with some of these issues head on because this is what folks are facing out in the culture today and how do we respond to that and deal with that without tubing our faith and walking away from this God who loves us. Let me start with, to me, some general thoughts, general ideas, you may call them presuppositions that I begin with when I get to passages like this in the Old Testament. First, I start with the presupposition that God is like Jesus. In the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. And so to me, sometimes it's harder to grasp kind of the God that's out there, and it's easier for me to grasp Jesus because he's God in the flesh. So to me, Jesus came as the Word, revealing the Father to me. So I take as my kind of first place to start with God is like Jesus. And so how do I interpret the Old Testament in light of the character that I see in Jesus Christ and to recognize that, that this falls in this big picture story of the Bible, that God created us for relationship with Him, right? We were placed in this 
perfect environment with a relationship with God, walking with Him closely. But in the midst of that, because of a spiritual fall of spiritual forces and because of human rebellion, it's all messed up right now. Violence was not part of God's original design for this planet and for human beings. But once we rebelled and there was this angelic rebellion, that violence came into the world. And that's the reality that we see almost immediately in the Old Testament with Cain and with Abel. That is not God's design originally for His creation. And God recognized this, but He did not just torch us all, say, I'm done with humanity. He loved us enough to provide them this plan of rescue for us out of all of this nonsense that we had gotten ourselves into. And that came through a specific group of people, the Jews, and it ultimately came through one Jew, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who would ultimately be the God-man that perfectly lived while he was here and gave his life so that the punishment of sin and rebellion, which is death, would be satisfied in him and all who trust in him would be able to experience the life of God. And that is the reality for every believer who has trusted in Jesus Christ. But that's not the end of the story. The story goes on and goes on to that place that one day Jesus Christ will return and he will judge every person. And nobody in our culture likes to hear about being judged, right? That, mm, mm, no, God wouldn't do that. I'm, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I'm, I'm better than this person sitting next to me on my right or my left. You get to pick there. But the reality is that Christ is going to return and he's going to judge all things and he's going to restore all things. There's going to be this combination of heaven and earth again. A restoration of Eden, I think even better than Eden, than where we then fellowship with God and there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more violence, no more evil. That's the big picture. And so as we get to these passages, we need to recognize that I'm looking at just a sliver of this big picture of God. And that's his heart. It's his heart that desires people to come to him to experience relationship with him ultimately to be with him forever and i see that modeled in jesus and sometimes jesus i think is misrepresented in the new time jesus is just a god of love he's just like a whatever dude live and let live you know i'm jesus i'm all about love you know love your enemies and all that kind of stuff but you realize if you read the words of jesus and you read through the gospels that jesus spoke more about eternal destruction and the importance of getting right with god he says don't fear the person that can just kill your body that's that's the worst thing that can happen to people in our culture if if i die that's that's horrible jesus says no no don't don't fear those people fear those that can destroy both soul and body in gehenna and so Jesus is not this meek and mild. He's okay with everything. Remember, he flipped some tables over. He had some pretty strong words to say to the religious authorities that were keeping people away from the grace and the love of God. So to recognize that as we look at this scripture, we need to take it in the big picture. And to me, where I start with is the character of Jesus. And I say, okay, if the God of the Old Testament is exactly like Christ, how do I put this stuff together? Second, human beings, those of us who are created in God's image. We all have a bent to want to run our own lives free of any external control and authority. We want to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. We want to be the center of the universe and we want to be making the decisions about our lives. That's just the reality of who we are as human beings, right? The Bible calls that sin. And there are sins, but sin, that 
aspect of who we are is at the core of all of us. And if you don't believe that, as I said, hang out with some toddlers for a while and see if we are all just these noble savages and it's just the bad environment that has ruined us all. Not saying that environment doesn't have an impact, but it seems to me we come in with a bent towards not the right direction. And those of you with kids know that? And just to remind those of you kids, you were a kid one time too. So you are not above that, right? And again, the reality is, as I understand it, we all stand before a perfect holy God and one day we will all give an account for our lives. And again, as I said before, that is very counter to what our culture wants, right? That everybody's pretty good generally, right? And just if we're tolerant and nice of one another, then everything's going to work out. God's not really going to judge anybody. Well, maybe they're really bad people. Maybe, you know, Putin, maybe Ronaldo Ramos and what he did in Nivaldi, Texas. Maybe those people deserve some judgment, but hey, I'm a pretty good dude. I'm better than most. And God is just being really, really uptight and really, really harsh when he talks about judging other people and getting upset about that. There's a guy, Miroslav Volf. Um, He was from former Yugoslavia and went through the wars there. He uh, teaches at Yale now, but uh, this is what he says. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade or the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because he is love. And again, most of us in the West have not experienced that kind of violence But to me, the reality is, and you could probably talk to Kelly and some others that have been through that and know that there's something in you if you love people that should rise up and get angry at that. There's something in us that should rise up and get angry at child abusers and those that are in that situation, and that's a good thing, and that's part of God's love. And that's something that our culture does not like at all. The reality that one day we will all give an account before God. Scripture says the wages of our rebellion is death, right? 
And that death comes to all of us. And sometimes the, the opposition to the Old Testament and the violence there is the age at which some of these people die. To me, my assumption is, is death is awful and it is a tragedy regardless of when it happens. Somehow in our world right now, if you live to 90 years old and die, it's like, oh, that's he or she lived a long, full life. To me, that's a tragedy. Scripture tells me that I'm called to be in a relationship with God that goes on forever. Solomon in Ecclesiastes writes, God set eternity in our hearts. I'm longing for this relationship that goes on with God forever, but only God possesses life and immortality. And I have to be connected with him to experience that life that goes on forever. And in the garden, that was represented by the tree of life. Humans, I don't think, are immortal. That's a platonic idea. But I think we have to be in relationship with God, constantly drawing our life from Him to live forever. But that's what God has designed us for. So to me, when anybody dies, that's a tragedy. Yet, we tend to look at early death. It's like, oh, it's so sad the person died at whatever, six years or 16 years or 26 years or 36 years. But if the person dies at age, they're like, that's okay. Okay, if you're an atheistic materialist, what does it matter when you die? You're going to be totally unconscious. You're going to go out. So what does it matter? It's coming to all of us, whether you're here for 16 years or 96 years. And then you just zap out of existence. You don't remember anything. So what's the big deal? But death is a big deal in Scripture. And Scripture calls it the last enemy. So it should be this awful thing that all of us recoil at whenever it is experienced. Yet as a believer, my hope is that death has been defeated by Jesus Christ. And as I look at these Old Testament passages, my belief is that kids below a certain age, often called the age of accountability, are in the Lord's presence. And that doesn't mean we should go out and kill kids so they can... No, only God has the right to give and to take life. That is his prerogative. And whether you die at 96 or at 16, that is his right. He gives life and he takes that life away. And sometimes we feel like we should be in control of that. We're not. We're creatures. We're human. All of us have that destiny. So when it comes a little bit earlier, yes, that's tragic. But when it comes even later, it's still tragic. So that's one of my perspectives as well. And another thing as we read the Old Testament, and you'll see some of these memes pop up, just because the Bible describes something does not mean it prescribes that thing. Right? Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Start reading in verse 6. Talking about the Old Testament. Now these things took place as, an, as examples to us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So you see what Paul is saying there to the Corinthians. Everybody, as they look at the Old Testament, needs to look at these stories as examples. 
And sometimes they're good examples, and sometimes they're really bad examples. And the examples he lists there in 1 Corinthians 10 were all pretty negative examples of what happened in the desert wanderings as the people were complaining, as they were rebelling, as they were interacting with the pagans around them and kind of these religious orgies that were going on. And he's saying, that's not what I want you to be like. Because sometimes you'll hear stuff quoted out of the Old Testament as if, yeah, God's recommending this. You know, the story in Genesis, one of the early ones where Dinah was raped and then Simeon and Levi say, hey, let's kind of trick these Shechemites and we're going to get them all circumcised and when they're incapacitated, what do they do? They go in and they kill them all. Now, is God recommending that? No, he's not. Jake was like, what in the world have you guys done? There's violence here that is wrong, and that is wrong. Yes, there were a certain couple people that were guilty there, but destroying this whole group of people, that is not what God was asking those folks to do. So be careful when you hear some of those things that they're not taken out of context, and they're not an example of something negative that God put in there. And to me, that's one of the things that affirms to me the truthfulness of Scripture. It's not whitewashed in any way. Most other religious books, especially the leaders in those books, are always portrayed in glowing terms. As you look at the Old Testament, I don't think you can hardly find a leader, maybe other than Daniel, that doesn't have some major blemishes on his or her record. It's just the reality. King David, wonderful, glorious. Oh, yeah, there's an incident where he had... Bathsheba and then had her husband bumped off. Well, that's not so good, right? So there's just a reality that Scripture presents humanity in all of our brokenness. And it doesn't tone that down. It does not minimize that, but it does not recommend that. So as you encounter some of those, recognize that just because it's described in Scripture does not mean it's prescribed or Scripture is warranting that kind of approach. Also to recognize that God is patient but he's not permissive. Exodus 34, 6, right? God is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. If you look at Genesis 15, 16, I'm not going to turn there, but we're told there, Abraham is told that your people are going to be in Egypt for over 400 years. Why? Why were God's people in Egypt? Why did they experience the slavery of Egypt because the sin of the Amorites was not yet full. So the Amorites were one of the peoples that were in the promised land. So God is saying, okay, these people, they're really bad, right? But they're not bad enough yet that they would warrant my judgment. So he holds his people in Egypt, and we don't know how long that good period under Joseph went where the Pharaoh came up that didn't know Joseph and started to mistreat the Israelites there, but there was a long period of time where God's people were suffering. Why? Because God was being patient with people in the promised land because their sin was not yet full. All right, when the scriptures say God is slow to anger, it does not mean he has no anger, right? And that's oftentimes how we look at that. God, you know, he should just be like, oh yeah, boys will be boys, girls will be girls, whatever. You know, God, it's, it's your job to forgive, right? It's my job to mess up, it's your job to forgive. That's who you are. God is gracious in forgiving us. Very, very gracious. But there is a limit to his patience. 
in Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 and 5. You don't have to turn there. I know I'm jumping all around today. But it says to this, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, talking about the Canaanite people, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Do you get what he's saying there? Okay, there's the wickedness of this people and other passages in the Old Testament. says it causes the land to vomit them out. And the Israelites saying, oh, look at us. We're so wonderful. No. If you read through Scripture, you recognize that God's judgment falls on the Canaanites, yes, and the Amorites, and all these people there. But you know what? He says the same thing is going to happen to you Israelites if you do the same thing that they're doing. And if you look through Israel's history, the same thing happened, right? What happened? 722, the northern kingdom gets booted out. Why? Because they'd abandoned God and they were participating in all the nasty wickedness that these people were doing. And if we tend to think, oh, you know, the Canaanites, they were just, you know, what's the big deal? Idol worship, you know, so what? Their God is this, our God is that. Their worship was pretty debased. All the archaeologists that look at this say it was really debased. There was all sorts of sexual immorality that goes on, incest, bestia, all that kind of stuff. And it was all practices that the people engaged in designed to incite lust in the gods so that the gods' lust would produce fertility of the land and of the animals there. So this is part of their worship. We're going to go worship, right? And this is what happened there. And then... One other kind of practice that wasn't so great was they had a god named Molech. It was this big statue that they would light a fire in and the arms were out like this there. And you know what? They would put babies in those arms when they were red hot because that's what they felt their god deserved. So when God goes into this land, he's not coming into these innocent little people that, you know, it's just they're off a little bit. They're understanding. No, these are people that are really wicked. And if you look at instances of warfare in the Old Testament, it's brutal. You look at the Assyrians, they would flay people, they would pile up heads. You know, and you look at this, it's like, wow, God's going in and he's wiping people out. Yes, he was. But the reality is these were not innocent little people that were just like, just, you know, living life. There was a lot of really horrible things that they were doing. And before God let his judgment fall, he waited 400 years. Now, it's Memorial Day today, and we celebrate all these freedoms in our nation, and we are thankful for all those that served and gave their lives for the freedoms that we enjoy, and we recognize, man, our country hasn't even been in existence for 400 years, and that's how long God was patient with these people. Yes, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, but anger does have a point at which you cross the line. And that's not a point that I know, nor do you. You know, in the New Testament, we get the same thing in 2 Peter 3, 9, where it's like, God's not slow as you understand slowness, right? But he's, he's patient, not wishing any perish, but he wants all to come to repentance, 
If you look at Ezekiel 33, 11 through 16, it's the same message of the God of the Old Testament. God, he said, take no delight in the death of the wicked. My heart is that they would turn, that they would turn back and do what is right. Yet there is a point beyond which we cross a line. And I don't know where that point is. But for the folks that were living in the promised land before the conquest, 400 years was about that point. And one of the challenges for believers is that when God is being patient with other sinners like he was patient with us before we came to Christ, sometimes that really hurts us. It does. It's not pleasant to be in Egypt in slavery while God is waiting patiently for the sin of the Amorites to be full. And so, to me, sometimes as God's people, we're going to experience difficulty because God is being gracious and patient with other sinners around us. And you know what? You ought to be really grateful because he was gracious and patient with you before you came to Christ as well. And I'm sure you did some stuff that hurt and wounded other people as well. So to recognize that God is gracious and he is patient, his heart is that people would turn and repent But that patience we should not view as permissiveness. That God's just kind of a big Santa Claus in the sky. It's like, oh, whatever. Do what you want. Everybody gets a pass. That's not the God of Scripture. So God is patient, not permissive. And again, as we look at this policy, the word in in Hebrew is cherem. It's this ban, it's destruction, that this total destruction policy that we see outlined in Deuteronomy 20 here, it was a policy that was instituted by God in a specific geographic location for a specific period of time. It's just for the conquest of these lands. It does not exist later on in Israel's history. They're not called to engage in holy war again, but it's a limited time. If you read the beginning of Deuteronomy 20, starting in verse 10, right before that passage that I read. It says, listen to this. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all the males to the sword. But the women and little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So that lets me know that there's a group of cities that God has said, okay, these cities, they're the ones that are to be totally destroyed. They're the ones that are in the land that was promised to Abraham. But they're cities that are, quote, very far away, and we're not given a geographic description of how very far is to an ancient person. You know, it could be two days donkey ride. I don't know what what that is, but those people, you offer terms of peace. And if they respond, then they're at peace, and you don't kill anybody. Even if they come against you, reject that term, then only the combatants, only the males are to be dealt with in a strong way there. As you look at this, you recognize that there's examples in Scripture of those that were willing to repent, to turn and align themselves with the God of Israel that God was gracious to, right? Jericho. Remember Rahab, right? She's there, and 
it's interesting that you, you look and like she'd heard, it's like, whoa, these Israelites are coming. And to me, it would be like, okay, they've just taken down Egypt, right? Egypt was the major superpower of the day. And then they're coming towards your land and you're like, what in the world is going to happen to us? And over and over in this section of Scripture, it's told that the fear of these people came on it. God brought this fear upon the people. So they're aware that these folks are coming. And so Rahab says, you know, I've heard this, and so I'm going to side with the Israelites. And she's gracious. And what happens? God saves and protects her, right? So God's policy wasn't total destruction. It was total destruction of those that continued to resist God in that area. Another interesting theory of these areas where there's to be total destruction um, is a guy named Mike Heiser. Um, he's an Old Testament. He's got his PhD in Hebrew. Excuse me, my thing just fell off here. That uh, he's got a book called The Unseen Realm. Bob Ames gave me this a couple years ago. But his theory, and this is going to sound really strange and it's probably not going to be a good apologetic argument to talk to your non-Christian friends, but uh, you remember that strange story in the beginning of Genesis 6 where the sons of God came into the daughters of men and the Nephilim were on the earth in that day and afterwards and this was the time of these giants that were in the land and they were there afterwards as well. So one of the views on this is that this is actually angelic and human spawn, right? And that sounds really bizarre to us, and we look at that and say, that, that's just way, way too weird. But you look at the Old Testament and you realize angels often appear as human beings. Remember when the angels show up with Abraham and they're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and they're just eating and chatting? And there's a couple interesting uh, stories in, I think, Second Peter 2 about angels that uh, did not kind of stay in their place, but, you know, are now in Tartarus, the lowest regions of hell, because they went after strange flesh. Or, and, and then in Jude, I think it's Jude 6 that talks about this as well, that, that these angels are in chains in their prison. And in those, both of those contexts, Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned as well in the sexual immorality there. So to me, though this sounds really bizarre, to me, Heiser's view is that these areas that warranted total destruction, it was because they were part of these giant clans. And it was an elimination of kind of this really evil, spiritually evil bloodline that was there. Because you see, remember when the spies go in? One of the, one of the things they come back and they say, whoa, land's awesome. But they're really big people in there. If you read Deuteronomy 2, it's interesting that Esau, his descendants, Edom, they went in and the Israelites were told, you don't get one foot of Edom's land, right? He's the brother. This is land that God has given to them. And the Edomites went in and they totally wiped out these giants. These Rephaim, they have different names, Zamzumim, Amim, you know, all these giant clans were there. And uh, if you remember the story about King Sihon and then there's a King Og and it describes his bed as being like 13 feet long and, and 6 feet wide. So to me, you look at that and it's like, okay, this sounds really bizarre and strange, but to me, the world's pretty bizarre. So I, I believe in a spiritual realm. So, you know, whether you take that or not, to me, that could be one of the reasons why he's mandating a total destruction of all these people because this is not only spirit or physical evil, but it's a spiritual presence there that's really dark too. 
And you wonder, okay, this is God's land. Is that why there was this targeted kind of force of darkness that was in that land trying to take it? And so basically the battle is not just a battle against these people, but it's a battle against the gods that have taken kind of resonance up in this place as well. Interesting theory if you want to read Unseen Realm. There's several chapters in there that talk about that. I know it sounds really weird, but again, there's a lot of really weird things in the Bible, and I think that there's a spiritual realm out there, and most of us in the West, we think strictly in material terms, and, you know, there's this what's called often the excluded middle. We believe, yeah, God's up there, you know, he's doing stuff up there, we're down here, but there's this whole spiritual realm that the New Testament talks about too, right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. What? Sure we do. It's that person that's really bugging me. No, but against principalities and powers and rulers in the heavenly places in the spiritual realm. So that's a reality. So just another possibility to look at as you try to explain or think about why God mandated kind of the annihilation of these people. Again, that's not going to be one that really probably sits well with your non-Christian friend. But it's interesting, you look at lots of ancient cultures had this, you know, the titans, these kind of demigods that were semi-humans, semi-god, anyhow, just an interesting theory, something to ponder, chew upon. Like I said last week, it's a pipe and beer passage to to ponder uh, in that way. So, uh, again, to recognize that when you get to these passages that deal with total destruction, it was for a limited area. And God actually forbade his people from destroying the neighboring peoples around it, and it was for a limited time. Also, to recognize that God's sin is not necessarily directed against the ethnicity of these people, but against the sin of these people. And again, you know, we see that example in Rahab. It's really clear that foreigners who align themselves with the God of Israel, there's a welcome given to them. You cannot read the Old Testament and not see God's heart for the foreigner. And his repeated prompting of his people to say, hey, don't treat the alien and the stranger among you any differently than you treat your natives. Why? They should have the same rules. There should be the same penalties. All that stuff should be the same. Why? Because you were once foreigners in a land that wasn't your own. So God has a heart for the immigrant, the alien, and he wants us to treat them well. And to me, when people will be willing to align themselves with God and Israel's God, he's like, welcome in, welcome in. They can participate in all the religious feasts and festivals if they follow through on some of the conventions of Israel at that time, but there's a welcoming to those foreigners who are willing to submit to the God of Israel. And also, as I mentioned before, to recognize that God's not ethnocentric, he's not xenophobic, that he has the same penalty for his own people that he has for these Canaanites. And we see that demonstrated. They both, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, both get hauled off into exile. Brutal things happen to them there. And you read in the Psalms, the Psalms like, well, happy is the man who you know, sees these enemies, infants dashed against the rocks. And we read that and say, whoa, that's a terrible God. A, it's not God saying that. It's the psalmist saying that. And you read the psalms, it's a heart cry out of that person's anguish. What probably happened to that psalmist? That person probably experienced one of his children being treated in that way when they were brought into exile. So to recognize that it's like, this is the cry of the heart, but he doesn't say, I'm going to go do that. He says, God, you do that. I, I want justice. And there's a cry in all of us for justice. 
As Wolf said, you know, if you've not experienced it, it's a little bit easy to get on a high horse and say, I can't believe people would think like that. But the reality is when it happens to you, there's a cry of your heart for justice. And then to recognize that those who were totally destroyed, I think, were only those that refused to exit prior to the Israelites coming in to conquest. You look at Exodus chapter 23. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I.e., run away, run away. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. So when we read sometimes the conquest of the land, it makes it seem like God went in there and just like, bam, everybody's wiped out right away. And to me it says God's going to send his terror before the Israelites. And there's a lot of scholars that believe that like Jericho and some of these, they were not just normal cities. They were military outposts, basically. And the folks that were staying in those cities were mainly the soldiers that were there to protect the land. The fear of God had already come on the land. And if you look, there's several words for drive out or cast out or dispossess. And there's some words that are used for totally destroy. There's a three-to-one ratio of those words. Thirty-three times those words of drive out, dispossess, cast out are used in the conquest of the land. And eleven times words of total destruction are used there. So to me, there's this, God brings this terror. And whether that hornet is literal and people are being chased out of the land because of bad hornets, or whether it was this picture of the, the fear of God that was going, most people probably had fled before they even got there. We see something similar in Ukraine, right? Where the Russians are coming in and lots of the people are leaving that land before they even get there. The women and children are getting out. And I think a lot of that happened. So those that remained were the hard-hearted, we're going to fight against this stupid God of Israel and we're going to take him down. So again, to me, these are some things that help me as I work with some of these passages. And also a final thing, oftentimes if you look at kind of warfare rhetoric in the ancient Near East, there's a lot of hyperbole that is used there. And I'm not going to go through a lot of these passages, um, but oftentimes they'll say these people were totally wiped out, like the Anakim were totally wiped out, and I think it's uh, Joshua 11, and then three chapters later, Caleb goes in to destroy some Anakim. So it's like, what's going on? I thought they were totally wiped out. And I think we use that same kind of rhetoric in oftentimes sports analogies, right? It's like, oh man, we just crushed them. We annihilated them, right? We killed them. You know, and those are not meant to be taken literally, but it's, a, it's like, we, yeah, there was a decisive victory here. We really, really put the hurt on these people. So again, that could be part of it as well. We talked a little bit about that and oftentimes hyperbolic use of numbers um, in, in the Exodus and, and some of those war uh, situations there. So that's a possibility um, as well when you get to some of these, these passages. Uh, to me, a helpful book, and we've got some copies in the
foyer um, is God a Moral Monster by a guy named Paul Copen. To me, this does one of the best jobs of dealing with some of these passages. And again, as we wrestle with this, you know, to me, a lot of these are going to be solutions that, you know, if somebody's pushing back against God and in our culture, people are much quicker to judge God than they are to judge themselves. And to me, that's not the place where I start. I want to give God the benefit of the doubt. And to me, as I approach some of these passages, I recognize, yeah, they're harsh, but I also recognize, you know, there was some really bad stuff going on here. And it's not like God has a trigger finger and, you know, the first thing they do wrong, it's like, no. God was extremely patient with that. But also recognizing, and we don't like this, but the God that we serve, he's a powerful God. And as the author of Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. And sometimes our picture of God is not at all accurate based on Scripture. And to recognize, you know, one day we will all stand before God. And we will give an account. And so to me, as you look at this, the takeaway, God is not a raging, genocidal maniac. He's a God that is patient, but at some point in time, that patient reaches, that patient reaches a limit. And I'm really glad that that fuse is pretty long in my own life because there was a whole lot of time where I was like, Mm-mm, I'm running my life, God. I want to do my own thing. Back off. Yet God was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. Unfortunately, I didn't reach that point. But to recognize that this is not God's general design. Judgment is his strange work, the Old Testament says. It's not like he delights in this at all. He gives over and over an opportunity for people to repent. But at one point in time, if they won't repent, then, okay, judgment comes. To me, you look at the New Testament, and, and to me, the most amazing thing is when Lazarus is raised. You know, And the Pharisees and those opposed to Jesus don't say, my goodness, this guy just raised someone from the dead. We better pay attention to what he's saying. It's like, oh great, now we've got to kill two people. We've got to kill Jesus, and we've got to kill Lazarus. To me, that's some serious spiritual blindness beyond which, I don't know, how do you convince somebody that that is that hardened against God? And if they are that, then judgment will fall one day. They will give an account of their lives. And God's heart has always been to bless all nations. To Abraham, through you, I want to bless all the nations of the world. And we see that with Christ, right? He's come and he's given this great commission to bring this good news to all people's we're looking at Jonathan and Devon and their crew in Papua New Guinea. Why? Because God has a heart and a love for those people there to come to understand who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for them. And also recognize that, you know, though we don't battle physically, we're in a spiritual battle, right? Look at Ephesians 6, right? That our warfare isn't with fleshly weapons, but we're in a battle. And I think oftentimes in our culture, especially Christians, we, we often don't even consider that spiritual realm and what's going on there, right? In the Lord's Prayer, you know, keep us from temptation, deliver us from the evil one, right? That is something we're to pray every day. And usually my conception is not so much there's a spiritual realm out there, but there is, Right? And the reality is, Scripture talks about that. One of the reasons that we're in the mess we're in is not just because of human rebellion, but because of angelic rebellion. 
that when humans come on the earth, there's already been an angelic rebellion. There's a serpent that's already there, and how you want to describe the serpent or shining one that's already there that has fallen and is luring people away from God. So there's two sources of evil in the world, and it's there and it's real, and we're called to ask God for protection against those forces. So to me, to recognize that, yeah, though this warfare is not something that we're to be involved in anymore, there is a spiritual warfare that God calls us to be involved in, and that primarily takes place in our prayer life. As we recognize, God, I can't do this, but you can do this through me, and I recognize that there's going to be powers that come against this if I'm striving for the advance of your kingdom, and I need to understand that. And I need to take advantage of the resources and the strength that God provides. And finally, to recognize and to understand and not to confuse God's patience with his indifference. Because it's really easy to do. And I know, in my life I did it. Yeah, I sin, you know, a chunk of my hair doesn't fall off, you know, a limb doesn't fall off. It's like, ah, God doesn't really care that much about that. Yes, he does. He's being patient with you in hopes that you will turn and repent And God, again, is not trying to rob us or rip us off, but he's trying to give us life. And that's why he gets so ticked off at sin. Because sin destroys our lives. Even though on the front end, there's a rush to it. That's the reality. And God gets ticked off at things that destroy those people that are made in his image. Let's pray. Father, we encounter this stuff and it is challenging, Lord. Yet help us to see this in an appropriate way. Help us to recognize who you really are, the holiness of who you are. Help us to understand who we are in response to who you are. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that is toying with you, that has a kind of trivial view of who you are, that they would understand that you are a holy and righteous God. And one day we will all stand before you Yet those of us who have trusted Christ have had our sins and rebellion forgiven. We have been given life and we need not fear that. We can approach you with boldness and confidence, not because we're righteous, but because we have trusted in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray every person here has done that. And if not, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be at work in their hearts. Help them to understand the seriousness of this and just the reality of who you are. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We pray that we would honor you with our lives and we pray that we would be able to share your love with those around us. And it's in Jesus' powerful and precious name I pray. Amen.